All right, let's begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come and study. We ask that you will fill us with your grace, your truth, your love. Um, uh, give us a focus and a vision for how we can best effectively take this message to the world. We pray for the members of our class who can't be here, those who are struggling with illness, that your healing hand will be upon them and in accordance with your will. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Uh, we are doing lesson number 13 in the quarter, First and Second Thessalonians, and the title this week is Keeping the Church Faithful. What do you think the title means? Keeping the church faithful. When I read that, I, I asked the question, faithful to Christ or faithful to the denominational organization? Or uh, is there a difference? Should there be a difference? Should it be the same? Is it the same? Yes. I believe, I believe that we're looking to the inspiration uh, that is spoken of whenever we're looking at this, of holy men of God as they were moved by okay. the Holy Spirit. And so God is the one that I would look to. So faithful to Christ, faithful to God. Um, so what does it mean for the church to be faithful to Christ? What does that actually mean? How would you describe that? I mean, it's a nice phrase, but what does it mean? Faithful to Christ, what does it mean? It means who is in charge. Pardon? It means who is in charge. It means who is in charge. Wendell. Faithful to who he is, so we are truly like him. I like that. Yeah, okay. So what that means maybe we represent him rightly. Okay, I like that, yes. Faith is kind of equated with the word trust. Faithful, full of faith, means that we're full of trust in who God is. Full of, uh, that's just the way it is, and it's good. So when we think faithful, it is full of trust. And I, I, I love that connotation. The word faith and faithful. Faith to me, I hear more of the trust. So you got that piece. Faithful almost feels like there's a little duty in there, a little responsibility. We got to be faithful. We got to f- fulfill our faith. We have to be, you know, not just full of trust, but we have a trust that's been given to us. We have been trusted with something. Is that part of the plan too? Did God give us a trust? So being faithful, we want to be trusting Him to fulfill our trust. Maybe. Yeah. So. Would that mean we would, as Wendell suggests, not only reveal the truth about him, but teach the truth about him? We teach the truth about him. Use use the resources to take the truth or the gospel, the good news about him to the world. That's what we use our resources to do. And do we and we practice his methods of truth, love, and freedom in our lives and how we treat others. This would all be part of being faithful, wouldn't it? In practical terms, though, what does it look like for the church not to be faithful? When I say practical terms, things that we might be tempted into, things we might be struggling with that could divert our faithfulness. How about teaching views of God that incite fear? Yes. When I, when I look at being a believer in God, there is a tendency to accept truth about God but then be closed as to how to carry it forward. I think for me, it's being open to allow the Holy Spirit to do the total leading in the life. And if that channel is open, God's work will be done in his people, which make up his church as Christ at the head. I really like that where you're going with this to be open, to be uh, usable, to be to be willing, to be a a vessel for the Holy Spirit can work. Um, and where does our volition come in? 
Is it a pa- is it a passive thing that we surrender and just wait, or is it we surrender and then act? Well, I'll just keep that in mind as we go through. I think that's a hard question because it can be both sometimes. There's a hard question. So let's keep that as we go through. Yeah, go ahead. The testimony of what God has done in the life is what's key to the Christian staying in focus with God. And, and I believe whenever we are sharing what God has done in our own journey with him, in our walk with him, that we don't need to worry about that. I think about that, and I think about the people from lots of different walks. I think about riding, driving around the community, and I see people dressed in black and white shirt, and, and their bikes and little name tags on, and pairs going from the community to share their witness. You know what I'm talking about. Okay, they're out there sharing a witness too of what their experience is like and how their lives have been changed. Um, and who are we to say that their lives haven't been changed by their experience? Uh, we can't argue against it. Does that necessarily mean that somebody has an experience that has been positive for them that they are taking the true picture of God to the world? Not necessarily. So it's it's we have these are all great points. Let's let's keep them in mind as we move through. I'm I'm thinking of. As the church, as the organization, how can we get diverted away from our faithfulness to Christ? And one way would be if we stumble into teaching mis, you know, distortions about God. If we're not representing Him faithfully, we're not representing Him truthfully, that would be a misuse of the resources, wouldn't it? How about we divert our energies and resources into politics? Is Christianity in America at all tempted into politics? Yes. Do we spend, do you think we are as passionate, and when I say we, I don't mean necessarily the people in this room, but I mean Christians in America. Do you think Christians in America have, your your perception, are more passionate about sharing the gospel or more passionate about stopping abortion? Stopping abortion. Russell. I was was going to move on to another thing, another barrier is when when a group of people considers that they've finally arrived at the truth, and they start building up defenses for that truth, and they they close their mind off to any greater revelations of truth. Okay, that, yeah, excellent. Yeah, and we when we read, I think, in Thessalonians last week about the wicked perish because they did not love the truth. So becoming that that heart attitude, knowing that we're finite, that whatever we we know now is is a piece of a bigger whole of truth. There's always room to grow in truth. So to close our minds to that development, it would be dangerous. What about the church using its methods of coercion? Historically, we can look back and see where that was very common. We believe that Revelation predicts a time where that will happen again. We can look at certain religions around the world that are doing that right now. You, you, you put out a piece of um, media, you know, media, a, a cartoon, a, a movie, you know, we, we use threat and coercion. What about the church refusing? Oh, what, never mind. Russell already said that one. Refusing to grow in truth. Okay, got it. Okay, good. Sabbath, Sabbath lesson. Somebody read the memory text for us. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the, to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. First question that popped into my mind is, who decides today what are the traditions to which we should hold and what are the traditions we should abandon? 
Is that a fair question to ask? I mean, we use the Bible text, we pull it out, bam, hold of the traditions. Well, you know what? I could name a whole bunch of denominational organizations and you might be having a, a friend, a neighbor, who you're going to share the gospel that you understand and love with and they might say, yeah, but I, and they pull out the Bible verse here and they read, but I, I must hold to my traditions. Well, I, I'm quoting the scripture. I got a Bible that tells me to hold my traditions. How do we know what traditions to hold to and what traditions to abandon? Yes. Traditions either function to promote health and better function and better thinking, or they degrade. And I think we have to be able to really evaluate our traditions and say, what is the fulfillment of this tradition in my mind, in my heart, in my life? I like where you're going with that. She's going to the practical outcome of what the tradition is doing. Now, I think about that, and there are some that I think are objectively, inherently, the way they work, unhelpful. We have the tradition in our church that um, we believe without thinking. Um, we just have faith. We don't ask questions. That's our tradition. Uh, that is inherently unhelpful. But there are other traditions. If you read Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah chapter 1, where God berated the people for feast days, Sabbaths, uh, coming to temple, uh, even prayer. Uh, and he berated them for their traditions of doing these things that he had instructed them to do. Now, they weren't inherently uh, 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 unhelpful. But what happened in that case? They did it without thinking of the meaning. There you go. The tradition became an end in itself. The tradition became a work to fulfill. The tradition became an obstacle to thinking rather than a stimulus to think. And that's why I said shortly thereafter, come let us reason together that your sins are like scarlet. So sometimes traditions can be an objective. We have to, I think, through, think through those things. And sometimes they, they become just a habit pattern and we, and they lose their, their impact. Yeah, Russell. Oh, Peter. Um, you had asked who, and, and I find myself thinking ultimately we do, individually, decide what traditions to hold and what traditions not. And, and led by the Holy Spirit as we reflect and as we think upon things, and as we observe and as we discern. I, I agree with you. As individuals, we decide. Russell? If, if the traditions don't, if we don't view the traditions through the filter of Jesus of Nazareth, just, just like you in the Old Testament, if we don't view that through the filter of Jesus of Nazareth, chances are pretty good that we're going to be misled by a tradition. And if, if, if a tradition gives is in harmony with Jesus Christ, then it should probably be followed. If it's not in harmony with Jesus Christ, then it probably should. I like I like the principle. I really do. I think Jesus is absolutely the lens. It's, it's one of the standards we need to hold to um, to discern the, the right from the wrong. Have you noticed, has there ever been problems where groups of people have actually come to, shall we say, blows because they have different traditions? Because they baptize different than each other. Yes? There were traditions of God and then there were traditions man-made. Traditions of God and traditions man-made. And some of the traditions of God were necessary for salvation? And were all of them? Were all the traditions God gave them necessary for salvation? Maybe not necessary, but helpful. Helpful, okay, helpful as teaching tools, as as uh, as as therapeutic interventions, but not necessarily necessary if if you didn't need the teaching tool. Yes. Our admonition in this text is to hold to the traditions that were given, 
And yet when Christ's disciples came into conflict with John's disciples, and yet Christ was the anointed one, the Messiah, he backed off. Mm-hmm. Yes, and do we see a tradition being established by the suffering servant, the one who came to serve and not be served? Was he establishing a methodology? When he all power was given to him in John 13, what did he do with power? He served rather than pushing his own way. He let people free to make up their own mind. Is a tradition of presenting truth and love and leaving people free a tradition we should hold to? Yes. Yes. Has anyone looked up the original for the word tradition? I'm just doing that. I, I have not. Because I think it also means teachers. I have not looked it up. What do you think about this as a as an attitude, which was, was written by one of the founders of our church more than 100 years ago, regarding things like this? This is a review in Herald, page uh, July 26, 1892. We have many lessons to learn and many, many to unlearn. God and heaven alone are infallible. Those who think that they never have to give up a cherished view, never have an occasion to change an opinion, will be disappointed. As long as we hold to our own ideas and opinions with determined persistency, we cannot have the unity which Christ prayed. Kind of reminds me of what Russell was saying, that once we establish our doctrines and stake them down, and, and we've got the truth, and, and we hold to them, and, and no amount of light are going to change, it's going to change us on that. Or this attitude, this is out of uh, Councils to Writers, page 35. There is no excuse for anyone in taking the position that there is no more truth to be revealed and that all of our expositions of Scripture are without error. This is our, as an organizationally our, expositions of Scripture are without error. And, and this was written after the great controversy, after the sanctuary doctrines had been laid down, uh, that uh, none of our expositions are without error. This is what she's suggesting. The fact that certain doctrines have been held as truth for many years by our people is not proof that our ideas are infallible. Age will not make error into truth, and truth can afford to be fair. No true doctrine loses anything by close investigation. That's such a great statement. Think about this in the medical science field. Think about, you know, well, we think this might be the problem. We think this person might have a mass in their lung. Well, you know, let's do an MRI. If there's a mass there, we won't lose anything by investigating and doing the MRI. See? Investigation doesn't create evidence. It discovers and exposes the evidence. We are living in perilous times, and it does not become us to accept everything claimed to be truth without examining it thoroughly. Neither can we afford to reject anything that bears the fruits of the Spirit of God. But we should be teachable, meek, and lowly of heart. The Lord designs that our opinions shall be put to the test. What does that mean? Our opinions shall be put to the test. Should we, we should question. We should question. We should ask questions. That we may see the necessity of closely examining the living oracles to see whether or not we are, we are in the faith. Many who claim to believe the truth have settled down at their ease saying, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. How shall we search the scriptures? Shall we drive our stakes of doctrine one after another and then try to make all scripture meet our established opinions? Or shall we take our ideas and views to the scripture and measure our theories on every side by the scripture of truth? Many who read and even teach the Bible do not comprehend the precious truths that they, uh, that they are teaching and studying. So what do you hear as, as the, the general principle being described here? A doctrine of infallibility? or a doctrine of openness to change because we're finite. See, this actually gives me great confidence in the person who wrote this. 
It really does. I'm, I very much like a, a person who says, hey, this is my best understanding at this time, but you know what? Only God is infallible. And does, uh, you know, there may be more truth, more evidence that can change my perspective on this. Most doctors actually remain open to new science, new evidence. Uh, if you look at the history of medicine, it's constantly changing based on new science and evidence coming out, to hopefully improving. In fact, you want to steer very clear of a doctor who doesn't. Yeah. They're dangerous. Yeah. And how about a spir- spiritual doctor? Do we call them pastors or witch doctors? <laughs> well, they're both, aren't they? Witch doctors are spiritual doctors, aren't they? Yeah. And, and do we want either one? Now, the witch doctor is always in a bad light. But don't we consider the witch doctor the one who is not open to truth, who's not open to evidence, who believes based on superstition and, and, and tradition only? Well, we would hope that our pastors would not be practicing those methods. They would be open to truth and follow the truth wherever it's leading. But if not, if we have pastors who practice the same methods, so how can we question, how can we be open to new truth without being vulnerable to deceit? Open to new truth without being vulnerable to deception, especially powerful orators, you know, the the powerful speakers, the charismatic person on, on the stage. How can we be open to truth, but not be swayed by the cult leader or the powerful orator. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. By really knowing our Bibles. You know, there's a large organization that claims the Holy Spirit leads them to truth. And they claim that this Holy Spirit works in this way. When you want to know what something's true, you go to your prayer closet and you pray as long as it takes and you get a feeling inside of what the truth is. And that's the Holy Spirit convicting you and letting you know the truth. You don't need to study the scripture. You don't need to look for evidence. It's the, the warm feeling you get inside that will tell you what's true or not true. We have somebody running for president who practices that method, I understand. That's one way to, that's one way to pursue truth. Is that how the Holy Spirit works? No. No, it's not. James tells us that that no one should say God tempts because God doesn't tempt anyone. Each one of us are tempted when we're drug away and enticed by our own evil desires or feelings, that, 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 that strong conviction inside. How many of you in your own life experience, think, think through your history, have had times when you felt absolutely certain about something? That girl is the right one for me. That guy is, I, I'm certain. And later you go, I am certain they're not. <laughs> Has it ever happened? <laughs> See, our feelings are wishy-washy. They can change. They're unreliable. Jesus said, you know the truth. Truth will set you free. Come, let us reason together that your sins are like scarlet. Everyone should be fully persuaded in their own mind, Paul says in Romans 14. The mature are those who have developed by practice the ability to discern the right from the wrong. All this requires engagement of your higher prefrontal cortex faculties, which the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth and love. The Holy Spirit always works with the truth to enlighten the truth, to bring the truth, to help us comprehend the truth, not against it, not to shut it down. Yes? Christ is the truth, and the Holy Spirit was sent to direct us to Christ in our leading. Well said. Absolutely. And, and, do, and do we get a knowledge of Christ only from closing ourselves into a closet and praying by ourselves? Is that the best way to get a knowledge of Christ? No. We don't only get a knowledge by reading about it. We get knowledge of him with a relationship with him. So how can so so 
Here's some ways maybe we can be open to new truth without being too vulnerable to deception. Number one, think for yourself. Don't let anybody else do your thinking. Hear ideas, opinions, perspectives, insights from other persons, but then evaluate them through your own mind, with your own judgment, weighing them with the scriptures and and principles that you understand, comparing scripture to scripture and, and so forth. Build your beliefs on testable truths. Make some foundational principles the foundation upon which your beliefs are built. Like the law of love we talk about in here so often, the principle upon which life is built to operate. The law of liberty we talk about here, in which only love only exists in an atmosphere of freedom. The, uh, the law of worship, by beholding we become changed. We actually assimilate and become like that which we admire and worship. These are all testable laws. And make your, make your beliefs conform and be built upon the laws that are testable. So if it's true love only exists in an atmosphere of freedom, and then you have a belief that somebody's putting out, love me or I'll kill you. You see, wait a minute, I, I can't believe that. It violates one of God's testable laws. There must be some other explanation for that passage. I need to study. What's that other explanation? How can, I, how can that passage be true and yet not violate God's law, his character of love? Use the life of Jesus as the lens in which our theories of God must conform. If you have a, a theory in which God looks in one way and character, Jesus looks different in character, there's something wrong with your theory. Because they're identical in character. And understand uh, God's laws in nature uh, is, is a natural law, not an imposed law. That's a huge one. Moving your mindset from looking at everything through an imposed law construct, God, the imposer of law, now must impose just penalties upon people. If you read the scripture through that lens, it shades everything. If you see it through God is the creator who built his universe to run in harmony with his nature, and violations take us out of harmony with the way life was built to operate and result in death, then we see it completely differently. So how should we handle diversity of belief and opinion and tradition? Well, George Patton said, if everyone is thinking alike, then somebody isn't thinking. <laughs> yes, we should, we should encourage free thought. We should not look to program everybody into robotic um, re- rep- uh, repeaters of mantras that we give you, you know, your, your, your prayer beads and teach you a, a mantra that you repeat over 10 times a day. And everybody has the same prayer, the same mantra, the same ability to recite the 28 fundamentals from rote. No, we should have our own thoughts, our own personalities. but we want everybody operating in the same character, from the same motive of love, compassion, grace, forgiving heart, care for others. But, but we want them to have their own personalities, their own talents, their own, their own, you know, I love musical people. I'm not musical. I want musical people who love the Lord, you see? I mean, we, we want to have all these diversity of ability, yet unity of love. Sunday's lesson, second paragraph. The lives of the Thessalonians uh, provided evidence to Paul that they had been chosen as first fruits to be saved. Some translations say from the beginning. Though salvation is a gift, the believer experiences it through sanctification of the spirit and belief in the truth. The life of the believer is more than just a subjective experience. It is solidly grounded in truth. And... I, I want to focus on this sentence in, in the middle here. It says, though salvation is a gift, the believer experiences it through sanctification 
of the Spirit and belief in the truth. I'm not disagreeing with this statement, just wondering if it's easy to understand. As you read that, does it make it very clear what salvation is to you? Maybe I should ask, as you read it, what do you understand it means? And, And sometimes it seems to me we put the terms of salvation in mysterious language. That we know these words, sanctification, justification, so forth, and, and belief, and, but yet it still seems amorphous. It seems like it's not substantive. It's like mysterious and mystical almost. Can you be more, can we be more literal, more practical in understanding what salvation is? Yes. Um, I'm thinking it could be trying to say that salvation has to be founded on Real truth we can we can um, test, and then it ought ought to have an impact in our lives. Um, salvation works itself in us, and therefore um, comes out in how we we live. Yes, I I go back to the example that you've used many many times. Salvation is applying the cure for the disease that we have. We're actually being saved from the condition that we've got. So salvation means I see the cure, I incorporate the cure. I'm being saved by the cure. Oh, I like that very much. Jesus actually used a metaphor to describe that in John 6. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. He's actually describing in metaphoric language what you just said. Unless you internalize and partake of me, the remedy. I'm the remedy. Unless you internalize and ingest me into your soul, into your heart, into your mind, into your character, uh, you can't get well. You can't be saved. You can't be restored. You can't be recreated in my image. So I like it the way you put it. Very practical, very clear. When we look at a patient who has a disease, who is being treated for that disease, medically speaking, they're experiencing salvation in yeah. that process. Yeah, I mean, when somebody goes to the ER with a snake bite and goes, hey, doc, please save me. Please save me. I've been bit by a rattlesnake. Please save me. I forgive you. <laughs> is, that, is, that what, is that what it is? No, it's healing. It's intervening to, to destroy the poison that's killing you and heal you, restore you. And that's what, of course, salvation is. So here's a, uh, out of a uh, review in Herald, March 10, 1891. See what you think about this perspective. Christ, Christ, the way, the truth, and the life, gave himself for the fallen world, and in him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's impactful. No greater gift can be bestowed upon man than that which is comprehended in Christ. I like that, comprehended in Christ. It's suggesting it's more than just something mystical. There's some awareness going on, some dawning light. Hopefully, I'm going to kind of let you maybe take a peek inside the way my mind works as we go through this. Okay? Because as I'm reading this, as soon as I read something like that, verses start popping into my mind all over the place. I have all these other, like, Popping up, comprehended, understanding the knowledge of Christ. Uh, we shall be, you know, life eternal is knowing Christ. Uh, we destroy those things that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. And, and all these other things are popping into my mind as I'm, as I'm reading this. Hopefully that happens to you too. And yet, men wait, refusing to give to God the allegiance of their heart. So we need, we're comprehending something about Christ, but we wait to give allegiance. This is something about salvation going here, going on here. But let the impotent look to the plan of redemption and ask themselves, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? That's a quote from scripture. 
How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? What does this mean? Escape what? The inflicted wrath of an offended God or our own terminal condition? It's like what Kathy was saying. How do we escape our disease if we won't take the remedy? You see, how do we escape this terminal death that we're in if we don't take the remedy? Does it make a difference if you understand how do we escape the punishment and imposed execution death sentence from God or how do we escape our terminal condition? Does it make a difference to your experience and confidence in God to hear it either way? It is perilous to neglect to render to God the full consecration of our powers. I like that, of our powers. What are your powers? Have you ever thought, what are your powers? What are your powers? Do you know you have powers? I didn't say superpowers. <laughs> but you have powers, yes. Going back to the scripture that you shared earlier from Isaiah, um, you know, come and let us reason together. So reasoning power. How about power of persuasion? You have those powers. Some people say, I've got the gift of gab. Is that a power? <laughs> you see? How do we use our powers? But we, we want to surrender, consecrate them all, to, all of our powers to God, for He has given them to man in trust. Will you not ask yourself, how is it with my soul? The great gift of salvation has been placed within our reach, placed within our reach. Think that through. It's like the remedy has been prescribed, the prescription has been filled, it's in your hand. See, that's what it's saying. The, the remedy, uh, it says, the gift of salvation has been placed within our reach at an infinite cost to the Father and the Son. To neglect salvation is to neglect... Oh, what do you think it says? This is great. This is awesome. Remember earlier we used the word comprehend? Okay. To neglect salvation is to neglect the knowledge of the Father and the Son. What does it say in John 17, 3? Your mind's going again, right? This is life eternal. They might know you. Yeah, see? Yeah. Good. Okay, so neglect... To neglect the knowledge of the Father, Son, whom God has sent in order that man might become a partaker of the divine nature. What's being described here? And thus, with Christ, heir of all things. The gift of salvation cost both the Father and the Son. Did you hear that? It was a costly uh, endeavor for both of them. Why is it, why is to neglect salvation to neglect the knowledge of Father and Son? Why? Yes. But is not salvation the work of a lifetime? Just like you take a medication every day, you have to have devotion to Him on a daily basis. Well, there's a quote by one of there's a quote by one of the founders of our church that says sanctification is work of a lifetime. Well, I think salvation is too. Yes, but yeah, I don't believe you're just salvaged. What about the now, what about the what about the thief on the cross? Well, <laughs> at least he believed. Yeah, he was saved, you see. Yeah, say salvation, as I understand it, is exactly, it comes to salvage. And, 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 and as soon as we have surrendered the heart to Christ, we have left, our heart experiences a change. See, our natural heart is selfish and in rebellion against God. We do not trust him. We have, we have lies operating. He's untrustworthy. We've got to watch out for ourselves. He's not going to really have our back. We're, we're not trusting him. The moment of salvation, the moment of conversion, is the moment in which we genuinely cross that line and open the heart into, I trust you with my whole life and being. At that moment, see, that's like the person who has got this terminal condition, 
but doesn't trust the doc. Prescription is given. That might be poison. I don't trust that doctor. He's, he's mean. He, he, he's killing people. Uh, if you don't do what he says, he, he, he shoots people in his waiting room. Uh, you know, uh, I don't trust that guy. I'm not taking it. Okay. From the moment, so, so the remedy is available, but we don't trust, so we don't take it. The moment we go to trust, we go, oh, I trust him. Take the remedy. And we partake the remedy. We partake Jesus Christ into our life. We have now left the path of death. We're on the path of life. But now that we're in that saving relation, that healing relationship, there is a process of recovery, restoration. We're not lost. We're not in the path of death anymore. But we're also not fully recovered yet either. So we don't want to confuse the the saving moment or experience when we've surrendered to Christ with the cleanup process that comes afterwards. Just like somebody who's had an anthrax infection raging for quite some time, they have lots of damage, they now take the Cipro and the anthrax is gone. So the anthrax is gone, but they still have a lot of damage and secondary stuff that needs to be recovered and healed. Okay, so a neglect, uh, so let's see whom God has sent in order that man might become partaker of the divine nature and thus with Christ an heir of all things. A neglect to lay hold of the priceless treasure of salvation means the eternal ruin of the soul, of your soul. So a neglect to take the remedy means the eternal ruin of your soul. Why? Why does it mean this? Because if you don't love Jesus, God will kill you. No, it means we are in a terminal condition, born in sin, conceived in iniquity, born in a modus operandi that's out of harmony with God, how God God constructed life to operate. Life cannot exist in God's universe out of harmony with him. And thus, if we don't surrender and get put back in harmony with him, we're ruined. Our condition ruins us. The peril of indifference to God and neglect of his gift is measured by the greatness of salvation. God has done to the uttermost of his almighty power The resources of infinite love have been exhausted in devising and executing the plan of redemption for man. I I hope you're like hearing this through that lens of natural law, that healing modality that uh, God has done the uttermost of his almighty power. The resources of infinite love have been executed in devising the remedy to heal mankind of their condition. That's what's going on here. He's done everything to prepare what's necessary for our salvation. God has revealed his character in the goodness the mercy, compassion, and love manifested to save the race. What could be done that has not been done in the provision of, of the plan of salvation? If the sinner remains indifferent to the manifestation of the goodness of God, if he neglects so great a salvation, rejects the overtures of divine mercy, refuses the gift of life purchased by the precious blood of Christ, what could be done to touch his hard heart? Do you notice the problem here? There is a problem that man doesn't recognize the need, that man's heart is hard, and that God has done everything to reach out, soften, and bring him to the point of surrender and acceptance of a remedy. But if if a person refuses, what more can be done? Yes. I was just going to compare it to a proposal. Someone can come and tell them, tell you that he loves you and wants you to come and be his wife and live with you. But unless you accept that proposal, you're not going to experience it. Exactly. Exactly. And if the person proposing, um, after you thought, asked for some time to think, actually, and started to threaten instead. Right. <laughs> hey, listen, if you don't, I'm going to, I'm going to kill your family. And then if you still don't, I'm going to torture you. But, but in the end, you bet if you don't love me, it doesn't work, does it? No. Here's, a, uh, there's another hand somewhere. Yes. Away in the back.
from one of our online listeners. One of our online listeners, IRH, um, says, in agreeing with God saving us, if justification is setting us right, then sanctification is God keeping us right as we agree with his methods? Yeah, I would, I would like that very much. Uh, justification setting us right, sanctification not only keeping us right, but actually healing the damage, the residual damage, the habit patterns, the, the preconceived ideas, the, the, um, the, um, neural network that, that, that conform to the old way of doing things are, are, mo- are modified and changed over time. So sanctification is actually a healing, restoring, not just keeping us right, but actually rebuilding us back fully into God's image. So it's, yeah, setting us right in heart and sanctification is then putting us right in every way. Yes, right here. You used a word in that quote that you were just reading, to put it back in the medical metaphor we, we use, that it's not just distrusting the doctor that's always the problem. It's just indifference to the condition that we have. You know, somebody who distrusts the doctor might well be able to know they got a problem, but they don't trust anybody to help them. But Satan has lulled us into such a state of indifference. It's like... I, I don't have a problem, so I don't need the medicine. You know, thanks. Or even worse, I had a patient um, that I was consulted to see in the ICU who was in the ICU because of liver failure due to alcohol. And after he was in a state where we could have a coherent conversation, I was consulted to see him to bring him over to the psych unit for a rehab, detox and rehab. And he was adamant, I'm not going to rehab. I'm not going to be part of that. Um, and I went through the whole thing with him. Why are you here? Well, because I've been drinking. Uh, what are you going to do when you leave? I'm going to go home and I'm going to drink. Well, what's going to happen? You go home and drink. Well, it's probably going to kill me. Um, do you want to die? No, I don't want to die. Well, why are you going to drink if you don't want to die? Uh, because I like drinking more than anything, and I would rather die than not drink. Okay? What can you do for him? Let him go. Let him go. That's what we did. I told, I wrote the note, said, we're, we're not bringing him to our unit. If he wants to do this, he's certainly free to do it. Um, but we ought to put a policy in place where he can't waste $150,000 of ICU and other expenses to put him back in condition to go out and do this again. But... And that actually is true for many in the relationship with God. They love, it's like what the Bible talks about, the dog returning to its vomit. Okay, um, They love their sin, and they would rather live their 70 or 80 years in their indulgent life uh, and die eternally than to work with God for healing and restoration. And, and, and I'm going to be truthful with you guys. Mm-hmm. Healing and restoration, just like detox, that process of, of taking brokenness and moving brokenness to wellness, is painful. It's a painful process. In any level, physical brokenness, you take a broken leg to move it to full wellness and restoration, there's a painful process. Surgery, rehab, work, you know, a lot of work involved in that process to get you, get you well again. Once there's brokenness, there is no pathway pain free. And unfortunately though, the pathway of self-destruction can give you the illusion of avoiding pain as you stay intoxicated or you, you continue to go from one relationship after another relationship after another relationship after another relationship and you get that new high of a new relationship which makes you feel good transiently. Okay? There's lots of self-destructive behaviors that, that are focused simply on making me feel better right now. Gotta feel better right now. And so it's like going to the physical therapist and say, yeah, I understand that, uh, that I need to do those exercises to, to walk again after my leg's been broken, but I'll be back when it doesn't hurt. I'll be back when, it, when, it's un- when it's not uncomfortable. Well, this is the problem with many when it comes to salvation. They don't want to accept Christ because there is, there is that death to self, that crucifixion of the self, that uh, P- you know Peter's night that he went out, uh, Na- uh, David after Nathan confronted him, Jacob's night of wrestling. 
There is a there is a moment we have to come to where we die to self that is agonizing and miserable, but it's so freeing when you come through the other side. It's the valley of the shadow of death. The, the valley not of death. It's the shadow of death where you feel like you're going to die on the inside, but he's leading you in the path of righteousness for the purpose of restoring your soul. And oftentimes we don't trust the shepherd to go through that valley. We go up to the point that we feel that tension, and then we turn back into the old way, and then we end up miserable along the side of the road again, and we pray, Lord, help me. And he starts leading us back to that valley where we have to go through to die to self, and then it's too uncomfortable, so we go back to our old addiction again or whatever it is. And we do this round and round until we're ready to finally let him lead us through that valley and come out the other side. Um, here is a... Uh, Quote from Signs of the Times, December 15, 1887. The heart must be cleansed from its impurity. Self-will must be exchanged for God's will. God's way must be chosen before our own ways. Many names are registered on the church books that have no place in the Lamb's book of life. Hmm. The great gift of salvation is freely offered to us through Jesus Christ, on condition that we obey the law of God and individually we are to accept the terms of life with the deepest humiliation and gratitude. Pause. What do you think that means? The condition that we obey the law of God. What does that mean? We worship on the right day? Is that what it means? So Martin Luther, who never understood about the Sabbath, is going to not be in heaven because he didn't obey the law. And he also had a wine drinking problem. He was a big whiner. So he won't be there because he did. I mean, what does it mean? Obey on the condition of obeying the law of God. How do you understand the law? Impose like Rome. So you got to keep that list or else, or the way God built life to operate. It'd be no different than, than the doctor going to the doctor and he says, Hey, the gift of your healing and restoration is going to be given to you free because you're under Obamacare. And, that was a little joke, sorry. <laughs> and But it's under the condition that you comply with the laws of health. That you have to stop you know, drinking that fifth of vodka every day. You have to comply with the laws of health. If you want to break the laws of health, we can't save you. Is that not what she's saying here? That salvation is free on the condition that you are conformed back to Christ-likeness, that you are put back in harmony, that you practice his methods, the law is written on your heart and mind, that we live again his methodology. That's what I think it's saying. And so what does it say in Scripture? First John 3.14, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Isn't that powerful? Isn't that powerful? Or how about Matthew 16.25? Forever wants to save his life Watching out for self, self, you know, survival of the fittest. Everyone who saves his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. We, when we move from survival of the fittest, me first, self-centeredness, to harmony with God's self-sacrificial love, and we love others more than self, we'll give our lives to bless others, we've left the path of death, we're now on the path of life. We are in harmony, we are conformed to the condition, we're living in harmony with God's law. That's how life is built to operate. None will ever enter the kingdom of God who do not reverence the statutes of his government. That makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Not a list of rules, but we love his ways. We love his methods. And how, and now is the time allotted to us to gain the mastery through divine grace. Notice through divine grace, not through human willpower alone. No, through divine grace. 
every rebellious thought and action uh, to work out our own salvation with bo- with with boasting self with excuse me let me let me I messed that sentence up let me try it again okay none will ever enter the city of God who do not reverence the statutes of its government and now is the time allotted to us to gain the mastery through divine grace over every rebellious thought and action to work out our own salvation, not with boasting self-confidence, but with fear and trembling. Amen. We are not to pander to the prejudices and, cu- cu- and customs of the world. We must not live for self, blending into the darkness of the world. Live for self, selfishness, blending into the darkness of the world, but keep from its evil, we must give our lives into active, earnest service as faithful soldiers for the captain of our salvation. This will sanctify the soul. Think that through. What is she saying here? Giving our lives in active service is what the soldiers of Christ do. How do we fight the war? With bombs, you said? Oh. <laughs> the love bomb. Yeah, love bomb. Okay. Yes. Okay, we fight the war with love. That's right. We give of ourselves in action, selflessness. This is how we fight the war. And how is it, though, that that this loving service sanctifies the soul? What does that mean? Keeping on with the final sentence, while we seek the salvation and benefit of others, we shall be workers together with God, learning his methods and partaking of his power. His power is. So uh, does it not make sense to you that the whatever it is, whatever behavior you're engaged in, the more you do it, the stronger it gets in your life. The more it becomes a part of who you are, the more you engage in it. So as we engage in loving service for the purpose of service, for the purpose of compassion, for the purpose of love for others, that strengthens that attribute in our character puts us in harmony with God's character the way he designed the universe to, to run, transforming us. It's part of the cooperative effort. And in the next paragraph in the lesson, it states, people's grasp of truth often slips with the passage of time which is why we must always be affirmed by those who preach and teach us. People's grasp of truth often slips through time. Well, I thought about this, and there is truth in this. People become forgetful. But this is talking primarily cognitive stuff, learned, wrote stuff. Um, Because our minds are weak, we do forget easily. And if we don't use it and reinforce it, we forget it. But is there a difference between forgetting what your spouse asks you to pick up at the grocery store and forgetting that you love your spouse? Or forgetting who your spouse is? (laughs) Those aren't the same, are they? And is there a difference in forgetting what nations are represented by the ten horns and the beast and forgetting your love for God? Or forgetting who God is? Are those different? And I'm going to get to you one second, Russell, one more thought. But we can't forget who God is if we never actually knew him. You can't forget something you don't know. So we must come to know him. Yes, Russell. This implies that those who preach to and teach us 
don't their 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 grasp of truth doesn't slip with time. It's just the rest of us. <laughs> Am I right? Yeah, I think that. Did I read that wrong? I you, I wouldn't dispute that, and I can tell you my my I've forgotten more than I remember. Yeah, you do. <laughs> yeah. Don't you guys notice how much you've forgotten? Like I used to know that. What happened? I used to know that. Would we be, do well to question the whole premise that we should be affirmed by others or we should be affirmed by our own study and thinking? Yeah, I think, uh, I think how we, we, you know, metal sharpens metal, and I think there is a place where we do benefit from sharing ideas, but as you say, ultimately bringing it back home, that after I've heard those ideas and perspectives, it's my responsibility to go home and study it out for my own self and, 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 and build my beliefs based on the evidences. One of the things that leads people to anger when their beliefs are challenged is they don't have an understanding of why they believe what they believe. One of the things that's happening in the Middle East, why they get so enraged and anger, these are poorly educated people. Most of them don't even have elementary school education, which makes them extremely vulnerable to their mullahs and their, and their, um, various spiritual leaders, and so they really are in a process where they do a lot of surrendering of their beliefs and thinking to others. They haven't learned the ability to think and reason for themselves. Um, this this girl who recently was was threatened, and, to, and she's still under some type of investigation, an 11 or 12-year-old who uh, was accused of burning some pages of the Koran for starting a fire for her cooking. Um, well, she's never she's a girl in Pakistan, which means what kind of education she got? Nothing. She can't read and write. So how is she supposed to know, even if it was the Quran, how is she supposed to know? You don't educate her, but yet you're mad at her? Come on, people. Really? I'll give you uh, another story I heard on NPR this uh, last week. was a uh, uh, woman working for women's rights in Afghanistan. A woman was raped, uh, reported to the authorities. They initially arrested the man, but went to court. The judge found the woman guilty of adultery and sent her to prison. Oh. And find, and also found that find the man guilty of adultery, but he got fined. Yeah. I mean, think about what you've got to do. Think, think, think through your mind. As I sent that to you about about this judge sending a woman who gets raped to prison for adultery. Think of the mindset that you're dealing with here. It gives you a clue of what God was dealing with in the Old Testament. When you read what God was dealing with in the Old Testament, now you see some of the what appears very harsh, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Ah, okay, we can't do that now. <laughs> you see? I mean, it wasn't harsh. It was moving this, this brutish and primitive people. Sadly, though, there hasn't been a lot of movement in some parts of the world. In the custom of the country that you are dealing with, if you're an American and you get caught in that situation, it's not so. You're put to death. Yeah, they can stone you. Yeah. Um, Let's jump to Monday's lesson, because we're going to run out of time. Here's a couple things I want to go over with you. Monday's lesson, um, first paragraph, it says, In today's world, many people laugh at the idea of a literal Satan. In their mind, he's a myth, a holdover from a superstitious pre-scientific era. They feel uh, that good and bad are simply random consequences of cause and effect, or in some people's minds, good and bad are only culturally constructed concepts relative to specific time, place, so forth and so on. Uh, as I read this, uh, there's that there's truth in that, but what I see more often is people who actually live in fear of Satan's power, fear of satanic and demonic power, fear of demonic harassment, fear of uh, of these types of things. And so the question to you is, do we need to fear the power of Satan? 
Why, why or why not? Fourth paragraph, as you're thinking about that, says the following. The good news is that though Satan is more powerful than we are, the Lord is more powerful than Satan, and we can find safety and power in the Lord. Well, you know, there's nothing wrong, there's nothing false about that statement, but the way it's stated could be misunderstood. It could slant things in a certain direction. In the controversy between Christ and Satan, was the issue over power? No. Satan claimed more power than God. I am stronger, I'll challenge an arm wrestling contest and prove that I am actually stronger than God. Was it ever over power? Or is it over, can you trust God with power? He abuses his power. See, that was the issue. When we think of, of God's power, what comes to mind? God's power. Just his creative power, the power of might. Is that the only thing that comes to mind? Something else comes to mind. If God's, is, um, th- does the scripture describe another power attributed to God besides the power of might? Salvation. Paul speaks, close, Paul speaks of the power of the gospel, the power of the good news. Um, where is the gospel power wielded? Where does the power of the gospel get wielded? In the heart and the mind. So what kind of a power is this? Yes. I was just going to say, in James, he says, submit your will to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Right. You need both parts of that statement. It's not just resist the devil, because on our own, we can't. Right. If we've submitted our will to God, and we're seeking his help and his protection. We don't need to fear the devil. He's a roaring lion because he's mad. He's all mad because he's losing his hold on minds. Yes. Fear him who has the power to destroy your body and soul in hell. Matthew ten twenty eight. Right. So don't fear the one who can destroy the body, but the body and soul. Right. Yeah. But that's fearing what he can do to you and mislead you and take you somewhere that you, you don't, you would not want to go. Yes, and who has the power to destroy your mind and body? And the word soul in Greek is suke, psyche, psycho, where we get psychology, psychiatry. It means your, your mind, your individuality. It doesn't, uh, and so, be, be, don't be afraid of wanting to destroy the body, because, because, you know, I'm going to resurrect a new body. Be afraid of the one who destroys body and your psyche, your individuality, your mind, your heart, your character. And what is it that destroys that? It's your willful collusion with lies and selfishness. That's what destroys it. Well, listen to this. Tell me who said it. Power is of two kinds. One is obtained by the fear of punishment and the other by acts of love. Power based on love is a thousand times more effective and permanent than the one derived from fear of punishment. Anybody who said that? Do you all agree with it? You did. No, no. I wish I was, I wish I was that brilliant. Yeah. Gandhi said that. That was Gandhi. How about this one? I know men and I tell you, that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires. But on what, on what, on what did we rest the creation of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men would die for him. Who said that? Napoleon. Napoleon. See, do you, are they describing power here? Both of these guys describing power. There's the power of fear, 
There's the say, powers of two kinds. One obtained by fear and punishment, other by acts of love. Power based on love is a thousand times more effective. I'm going to tell you, there's a power. There's the power of truth. There's the power of love. This is the power of the Holy Spirit. Which is stronger, hate or love? Love is stronger. Why does a soldier volunteer to get out of a foxhole under fire and put himself in harm's way for hatred of the enemy or love for his fellow soldier who's in danger and he needs to go help him? It's the love that drives him, not the fear. Stronger, lies or truth? There's no doubt lies are powerful. Look at the whole great controversy based on lies. But what destroys a lie? Truth. Truth is more powerful. What's stronger, slavery or freedom? Freedom. What wins the loyalty of the heart? Slavery or freedom? Which is more power to build loyalty? Threat of punishment or delivery from bondage without expectation of payment in return? You say, do you understand the freedom that you've been given in Christ? How he's delivered you from this terminal condition? How when you accept him, that there is freedom from your fears? You don't have to live in fear anymore. And then I, I want to close. we got about three minutes. Uh, jumping to Tuesday's lesson. And it talks about uh, in the last paragraph in Tuesday's lesson. I think it's Tuesday's lesson. Yeah, it says, Paul, so Paul's definition of disorderly people was not limited to those who were disruptive in church or community. He broadened it here to include anyone who did not follow the teachings and practices of the apostles. If you're not following teachings and practices, you're disorderly. Like, not baptizing people at the moment of conversion and instead substituting the sinner's prayer and putting someone through six months of indoctrination first? You mean like that? Would that be disorderly? Well, let me tell you guys, I'm bringing this up for a real reason. I would like to suggest that the way tradition currently handles conversion undermines the work of the Holy Spirit. That first love that we experience when we're converted was in Bible times immediately validated with public baptism and acceptance uh, acceptance of and love for Christ, based on the acceptance of and love of Christ, and they were immediately accepted into full fellowship of members of the church. And then they were mentored and, and brought along. It was grace in action. But what we've done is we've interposed something between the believer and their first love. Tradition has put the barrier of indoctrination, required, required doctrinal learning, attestation to loyalty to an institutional church, change of lifestyle, jobs, diet, dress, before baptism, which says that you are not accepted as a Christian until you work to change all these things in your life. And by the time you've done this, we've driven love out of the heart and we replaced it with a whole list of do's and don'ts and Christianity becomes a huge burden. This is what I'm suggesting. So I have a hypothesis that if we return to the biblical model and baptize people at conversion, then mentor them in love, the church will be filled with people in fire for God and who love each other. Amen. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have provided the truth through your word, through your son, and that you provide your spirit to enlighten us. Lord, give us grace as we grow in truth that we can present it in, in humble and gentle ways and winsome ways and, and enable us to go out and shine a light in this world. Open the avenues for our ministry to, to reach out beyond this community. Uh, we want to see the world lighted, uh, with a, with a passion for your character and your love that, that, uh, the world will be prepared to meet you soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Amen.